just to say that James will now talk on Ether and Wireless, an old medium into new media. And this is part of James's um, larger project, funded partly by the Bussy Fellowship, um, to explore the afterlife PD of the Ether. So my, my, my talk will focus basically on the wireless people and their approach to the ether. Some war in the ether. <laughs> With these headlines, some British newspapers reported in December 1933 on the problems expected from the immediate changes of the dial that all European broadcasting companies were due to implement with the new year of 1934. The initial impetus of wireless without national or international regulation was making it increasingly impossible to tune in the right wavelength without interference from other senders. At the Lucerne Conference in the summer of 1933, European countries had reached a formal agreement to limit the number of stations and their range so that broadcasting remained controlled within the limits of national boundaries. A few countries, however, had formally rejected the deal and there was real fear that the overcrowded ether would become ever more confused. The solution, says the article, to buy a new vehicle radio set which accurate selectivity, quote, will let you sort out each program from its ether neighbors to bring every program loud, clear, distinct, free from interference and background overlapping. This was called the surest defense against the war in the ether. So I wonder whether this is really an article or an advertisement, but we find it in several newspapers. <laughs> Reference to the ether in matters related to wireless and radio broadcasting in the 1920s and early 1930s was common in the British press. The word ether became shorthand for many aspects of radio. The undefined locus where wireless phenomena took place, the dial of radio sets, the space between sender and receiver, the awe surrounding the new technology, etc. The plasticity that 19th century British physics had granted to, first an optical, then an electromagnetic ether, was now rep replicated in the area of wireless communications, at the hand of the new popular gadget, that is, the radio set. The ether refilled the physical world at the same rate radio sets invaded the domestic and the social spheres. From amateurs to inventors, from regulators to consumers, the ether reappeared in the British collective imagery. The war in the ether, about which some newspapers were dramatically reporting, was contemporary with another war. A war about the ether, taking place in the public sphere, as we just learned earlier. Was she? Ah, yeah. Imogen's paper. After the much advertised 1919 astronomical observation, Einstein's relativity theory became a major cultural topic about which every educated person needed to have an opinion. Physicists and philosophers engaged with the general public in trying to understand the depth and implications of the new theory, not least among which was a debate on the existence or not of an ether. Following Einstein's famous statement that this theory was neutral regarding this topic, the flow was open for arguments on whether it was convenient to keep a concept of the ether. The word, neither, or both. So in this paper I want to explore the role that wireless and radio broadcasting had in keeping the ether alive at a time, 1920s and 1930s, when traditional history of science assumes the imponderable fluid to be dead and buried. The story will begin at the end of the war, when wireless communications turned into modern source of entertainment for the middle classes. So far, wireless had, a, had made a huge impact in maritime communications as well as in military and imperial activities, 
It had also become a new toy for the amateur scientist engineer, without whom the early history of wireless communications cannot be understood. But in 1922, with the creation of the British Broadcasting Company and the accessibility of most people to a radio set, interest in the basic mechanisms of wireless escalated, creating a demand for clear and simple explanations based on the common sense of the time. And the ether was, at the time, part of common sense. So this is the, well, yeah, this is what I'm going to write about, and I'm going only to talk about the first two sections. So the development of wireless after second, the First World War, sorry, and wireless and ether. The third and fourth uh, topics I leave for, if you want discussion afterwards, and certainly for other more philosophical presentations. Um, so section two will deal with the users of the ether by three groups of people, the wireless amateurs, the professional technicians and engineers, and the advertisers, journalists and popularists. Uh, section three it is part of what Imogen has told us about the debates around relativity and what and ether in the public arena. Uh, let me just give you a brief account on uh, methodology here. So what I did, so because here is Alex who uh, who's responsible for the Marconi way in these four months partly was to go through all the popular uh, books, articles on wireless to see what the ether, uh, what role the ether played. And in November, December, I did a similar thing at the Library of Congress, uh, thinking, as one continental person usually does, that this was very much an Anglo-American issue as opposed to a continental issue. But I was surprised, not gladly, that what I found in the British context, I didn't find in the American context. So similar journals, similar uh, wireless uh, um, writings did not have the emphasis on the ether that I did find here. So, right. So let's go to the development of wireless after World War One. Shortly after the, the end of the Great War, the wireless world reported on a plea to extend and consolidate the network of wireless stations created during the conflict in order to enhance the connectivity within the British Empire. The war has been the cause of great increase in the production of wireless plant, they said, and it should be a co comparatively easy to find at once sufficient gear to enable a temporary system of news exchange within the Empire to be initiated with it without much delay. And to reinforce the point and warn against complacency, a comparison with the recent development of aircrafts, although we have awakened to a sense of our destiny in the air, can the same be said of the nation in respect to the ether? While Britain had been on the forefront of the telegraphic industry and through the Marconi company also a pioneer in wireless communications, the existence of an imperial network of cables, though increasingly out of date, had somehow delayed the establishment of a global wireless communication system in the empire. Consequently, France and the United States took a momentary lead in the use of radio as a means to keep their colonies and naval equipment interconnected. Part of the problem in Britain was the tension between the Marconi Company, a private corporation with enormous monopolistic power in wireless, and the post office, a state organization in control of the imperial cables. The mixed cable wireless system that had so far worked and preserved equilibrium between both parties was soon to be challenged. In the early 1920s, Marconi successfully <coughs> developed shortwave systems 
which allowed for long-range directional point-to-point -point communications. The sudden large-scale implementation of shortwave in British communications was a micro-invention, a new development of an established technology that had previously be con been considered non-viable commercially. Interestingly, for the purpose of this paper, one of the elements that coalesced in the expansion of shortwave communications was the earlier decision by the military authorities not to use shortwaves in legal communications due to its unreliability. This permitted amateurs to expend all their time and effort on virgin wave bands without fear of penalty. Many of them who were war servicemen seized the opportunity to communicate with overseas relatives. As a matter of fact, amateurs were and remained for a long time a driving force in the use, spread and improvement of wireless techniques. The Wireless World, an illustrated monthly magazine for all interested in wireless telegraphy and telephony, that's the title of the, of the journal, uh, is a graphic example of the existence of a large network of amateur and semi-professional practitioners of wireless in the interwar period. First issued in 1911 as a bulletin for Marconi employees under the name of the Marconi Graph, the publication changed name in 1913 and in 1922 turned into a weekly magazine with huge commercial success until the outbreak of the Second World War. This periodical with its articles and advertisements is a privileged showcase of the development of wireless technologies, its publics and its practitioners. And it shows a huge army of experts and amateurs working together in the creation of a network of resources, information, parochial concerns and commercial interests. Just to mention a few examples, most issues in the wireless world contain a section with reports on technical problems found by local operators and the way to solve them, a section with accounts of experiences in the practice of wireless by amateurs, advertisements to encourage, to encourage young people to train in wireless and secure a job in an area increasingly needed of qualified workforce. The expertise among enthusiasts of wireless from engineers and professional scientists to domestic amateurs and small stations technicians was, was diverse enough so as to trigger a wide range of epistemic strategies. Explaining and understanding wireless was a need that had to be fulfilled in different ways due to this diversity in the actors involved. And if wireless had been important before 1922, it became even more so with 1922, the creation of the British Broadcasting Company, 1926 changes to the British Broadcasting Corporation. And, uh, and that has to do a lot with this thing I was saying, introduction of spreading wireless, not just to, other, to the amateur, to the military personnel, to the naval personnel, but to every single household. And who is behind the BBC, who is behind uh, um, the whole thing of wireless in this country? Certainly one of the big shots is Marconi, who I find being called the wizard of the ether in a few, of the in a few uh, newspaper uh, clips, including an obituary after his death in 1937. Wireless and the in 1903, Sir Norman Lockyer made an arrangement with Marconi in order to send wireless messages across the Atlantic for the improvement of meteorology and weather forecast in Britain. In analogy to the word telegram, Lockyer used the word ethogram for the new type of messages. The short-lived expression made some sense since it emphasized the medium through which information was transmitted. 
That was the point made also by the London lecturer in physics and science popularizer Walter Hibbert, who in his 1909 book Popular Electricity rejected the widespread of the use wireless because it was simply a negative term without wires. This without words was giving no hint of what medium was actually used in sending messages. It might mean, and I quote, signaling from by semaphore or by flag or by the sun's rays. That is why, from his point of view, it is easy to see that the correct name is etheric telegraphy. The problem was not new. Action at a distance had been and always will be a matter of deep metaphysical concern among scientists and natural philosophers, and wireless technology was only putting this problem back onto the table. The ether had played that role for over a century in the British milieu, and there was no reason why it should now be abandoned when its epistemic power was needed the most. So if one thing I'm claiming ether did explain at a philosophical, metaphysical level was action at a distance. And when that most needed was, is, with wireless and the BBC. With, uh, sorry, like many new technologies, wireless was placed in a limbo area between mystery and human ingenuity. Mystery because it was providing with commodities previously unthought of by a means only accessible to the connoisseur. Human ingenuity because it proved the dominion of mankind over mysterious forces of nature. Ditha played both roles at the same time. In a statement of 1922, in the context of advertising the new possibilities opened by the radio corporation, Marconi himself used ether in these two senses. In 20 years, the mysterious all-pervading ether will be surging with human speech conveyed by ether waves. Whispered conversation with friends in lands as remote as Australia will probably be commonplace, and science having revealed to humanity another wonder of nature, will have forged thereby a fresh link in the much-desired chain of international friendship. Note here that it's 1922, not just the advertising of let's get a radio set because this will be great, but also because this will bring us peace, right? The whole pacifist thing, I'm not quoting it, but I just can't uh, help mentioning that in an interview later on, to Marconi, they asked him about this peace versus war use of wireless. And I think it's about the late 1920s that when you know the network of wireless is getting increasingly sophisticated and increasingly powerful, they asked him, well, this will end up creating a kind of global network of communication. And is that not dangerous for, you know, that someone might control the whole thing? And his answer is, I think, very amusing, because he says no. Because, you know, the achievement of such global network will be a question of developing thought. And that will be a matter of intelligent people. And intelligent people are always peaceful. So with the development of the mind that guarantees the development of wireless, also peace is uh, guaranteed. Okay, that's... Um, so that's the, the, the peace, pacifist remark. In a similar note, did the famous inventor and popularizer of science and technology, Archibald Montgomery Law, express himself as far as 1939 in a chapter called Science Conquers the Ether in one of his more than 40 books. Actors involved in, his, in this dominion of the ether understood it and explained it in different ways. 
and I shall classify them in three groups which I am the first not to be happy with, but anyway, the amateurs, the technicians, and what I say, the popular commercial political agents. Wireless amateurs. Shortly after the end of the Great War, the assistant general manager of Marconi Company, G.E. Turnbull, wrote in the editorial of the Aerial, Aerial, sorry, a gazette for all the staff in the corporation the following thing. And I quote, the spirit of comradeship in the wireless world arising out of and fostered by the material as well as the ethereal nature of our work is one of our priceless assets and it must be retained. The expression shows the spirit of corpse that the company was trying to promote among its employees. But it also reflects the unity that wireless amateurs throughout the world had among themselves and the uses that company like, companies like Marconi make of the passionate free work. The wireless world, with its sections on letters to the editors and news exchanges, became a source of information useful for the commercial development of the new technique. In an internal memorandum of the company of the Marconi Company of 1925, the company was praising the work of individuals who regarded their activity as an amusing hobby to keep their long, dark winter evenings busy. And I quote from that memorandum, the advent of long evenings in recalling the amateur wireless, sorry, the advent of long evenings is recalling the amateur wireless experimenters to the fascinating hobby of exploring the ether to add new names to the list of towns and countries with which wireless messages have been exchanged. This activity was ethereal not only because it dealt with ether, but also because it was uncontrolled, unorganized, and perhaps more importantly, unpaid. Moreover, the amateur was a customer of Marconi and other wireless companies' products, and it was only natural that they promoted their activity. Less sympathetic became the general public with amateurs when radio sets began to be common in many households, and reception was far too often prevented by some neighbor's ethereal search, interfering with the BBC signal. The evening news of 24th April 1926, for example, complained about, and I quote, the too keen amateur nuisance that was crowding out the ether. And it says that article, some months ago there was a number of protests concerning the manner in which the ether was occupied by wireless research. To many listeners, the expression research seemed to be unnecessarily dignified for a process which appeared to consist merely of the broadcasting of a number of inferior gramophone records interspersed with the announcement, hello, 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 this is station 5ABCD. So first sympathetically, later then less so, the ether needed a guide for the wireless amateur. And here we have the guide of the ether. So this was the headline on the the left-hand side. This was the headline with which the wireless world of 1920 showed all the stations amateurs could catch in the search for early wireless signals. It was a guide to the ether. Um, I should be honest, the following year, 1921, the guide of the ether, it's the same thing, but it's called time signaling stations. So, uh, well, fair enough. But the ether came back in the same magazine later in the decade, trying to help amateurs and customers to radio, of radio to search their favorite stations. The magazine reintroduced uh, who is who in the ether. Uh, the section uh, being a guide to distant reception. But what was meant the amateur to know about the ether? Certainly not much. 
but neither did the more learned inventor or engineer, although some of them had a patronizing attitude towards the amateur. In one of his many books on wireless, P.J. Risdon uh, wrote that the amateur is at least for the time being relieved of the necessity of trying to investigate or understand the properties of the ether, as if he did. Our advice is, do not attempt to do so. Be satisfied to assume that space is occupied of a medium by a medium of some kind which serves for the propagation of light and heat waves and of the electromagnetic waves of wireless. And that was the attitude that the amateur and the practitioner of wireless had to, to, com to take on board. Not dissimilar to the attitude of 19th century electricians to assume the existence of an ether about nothing uh, about which nothing was known except that it needed to exist. Risdon's 1924 book on wireless is also typical of these kind of books in the 1920s. That's what I was saying earlier to um, uh, Jeffrey. It starts with the ether theory in chapter two, ether waves and vibrations, chapter three, where the ether is, com uh, is presented as a necessary convention about which a great deal of nonsense is taught and written which might even not exist, but which, in theory, it has served useful purpose and will continue to do so unless and until its existence is disproved and some better theory is established. Interestingly, the need of this ether is clear in the rest of the chapter. Sorry, the... Yeah, interestingly, the need of this ether is clear in the rest of the chapter where it does not appear again. So the ether appears chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and again, it does not appear again until chapter 46 and 47, the last chapters on wireless and telepathy and interplanetary wireless, mm -hmm. something that was very typical in the mid-1920s when some people said that Marconi had gotten signals from Martians, right? Uh, which Marconi, of course, said no way. But, but, you know, that was on the Sun and the Daily Mail and this kind of... Uh, Newspapers. Um, one of the things, yeah, yeah, let me let me give you a quote that's not here. One of the things about the use of wireless by the amateur is challenged by some people who say, "Careful, because the talk of wireless might be giving the wrong signal." If you talk about wireless as a medium compared to air, for instance then you're sending the right message that, you know, in the same way, and let me, let me quote from here. Uh, this is, um, yeah, this problem of the ether is so pronounced that although the majority of people who talk the language of wireless pay lip service to its possible existence, they are still so confined to material things in their reasoning that they find some difficulty in arguing rationally on the possibility of wireless signals being upset by high winds or a fog. So basically what they're saying is, some people, if you talk too much about the ether, you're comparing it with some real material medium that will be challenged by wind, by storm, by fog, and therefore that doesn't help the explanation of wireless. So let's move to the more technicians and inventors. Uh, here are two pictures from the wireless world 1920 explaining what the ether is. So, yeah, so what we have here is part of the wireless world, part of uh, some popular magazines uh, as well. They do sections on the ether, 
and let's explain things about ether and certainly you have articles about what the ether is let me get you here the big uh, definition what is the ether uh, disclaimer using the word not in its chemical sense of ether the anesthetic but which with the meaning commonly assigned to it by the physicist much has been written about this universal medium for such we may call it for want of for of a more exact knowledge of its ultimate nature and many other theories that have been built around the uh, hypothesis of its existence the term ether <coughs> is generally used to designate this omnipresent universal medium which fills all space uh, and is in between and around all bodies and substances so that's one of the many definitions what can find about the ether one way to understand the use of the ether by technicians inventors and trainees in the field is to explore the many available dictionaries compilations of important terms yearbooks etc most of them include the term ether or and ether that is written with an e or with an ae um, and actually i haven't found a single dictionary in wireless in electricity without the term ether um, first disclaimer is common using the word not in its chemical sense of ether the anesthetic but with the meaning commonly assigned by the physicist this is why some dictionaries prefer the term aether right to differentiate it from the chemical compound although ether became with e became the more common the most common in the 1920s an example of the fluidity between both spellings can be found in the yearbook of wireless telegraphy and telephony uh, a publication for the Marconi company from its first volume in 1913 to 1915 the term is a ether while from the 16 to 1923 ether with just an e is used only to return to a ether in the last two editions of 1924 and 1925 the definition in this publication also changes but only slightly thus in 1913 we find and that's the definition I'm not sure I have it here no. well, but here are the dictionaries that some of the dictionaries are checked ether the imponderable elastic all-pervading medium which cannot be detected by any of our senses but which is supposed to exist because the idolatry theory of light and of electromagnetic waves based on that supposition gives a good working hypothesis by which to explain a large number of important phenomena not only fitting in well with known facts but even leading to the discovery of new ones that's a long definition 1915 the definition gets much shorter and that's just the medium assumed by electromagnetic theory in order to explain the translation of energy and finite speed by electromagnetic waves and again in 1924 it changes a bit but the meaning is the same the imponderable elastic all-pervading medium which is assumed to exist in order to explain the transmission of energy in the form of electromagnetic waves note that there's no reference to relativity in the definition of the ether because that's not what we are talking about this is a dictionary of electricity for you know mainly technology people engineers and so on the number of dictionaries is rather long from the small pocket editions to thick technical volumes two general conclusions can be inferred from them first that the ether was a necessary supposition and no dictionary did away with it as irrelevant and second that the ether did not appear in the definition of other more technical terms as late as the 1938 third edition of rogers dictionary of electrical terms including telegraphy telephony and wireless 
the voice ether is preserved as the hypothetical or prophetic medium by which light and all other electrical waves are regarded as being propagated and through which all the forces between electrons are exerted. Incidentally, this one, yes, has another entrance e about the Michelson-Morley experiment. Right? This is a very thick dictionary and talks about the Michelson-Morley experiment. What does he say there? Well, it appeared to indicate that the, the, that the Earth carries the ether around with it, around with it as no interference in the velocity of light in the two cases could be detected. That is 1938 dictionary of uh, electrical term. Some inventors and engineers became public faces of the wireless industry in authoritative voices of their development to the young engineer and to the general public. Such was, for instance, John Ambrose Fleming, inventor of the thermi thermionic valve and key agent in the development of the Marconi Company and wireless telegraphy at large. His 1902 book, Waves and Ripples in Water, Air and Ether, uh, which is a compilation of his lectures at the Royal Institution in London, uh, was quoted everywhere. And we find uh, it quoted in the 1920s again and again. Right, So that's why I put it here, even though it's much earlier. The Wireless World, which he wrote, um, sorry, he, interestingly, however, in a series of 20 articles in the Wireless World, which he wrote starting at the end of 1922, contemporaneous with the creation of the BBC, we do not find any mention of the ether by this Fleming. Another person worth mentioning is Captain Eckersley. Uh, he was chief engineer of the BBC. His technical writings do not contain much ether, but we find more often than not reference uh, to signals than to waves. This terminology is important because it conceals the problem of action at a distance and thus the need of a medium, and certainly the need of waves, if you talk about signals and not about waves. It is only in the more general writings, like his 1925 book, All About Your Wireless Set, that, and I quote, the issue arises that he accepts uh, that there must be an elastic medium between us and the sun, because we reject the action of action at the distance. The presence of the ubiquitous medium that permeates everything in outer space and within sealed rooms is important because the ether, no light as a wave, no heat again as a wave, and worse, no wireless would come to let us see, to live, and to be amused. And sadly for him, it is so ubiquitous that it also titivates the carefully concealed indoor area of the license avoiding listener. Is the chief engineer of the BBC and he is not happy that people are you know the ether is so present that you can even use it without paying for it right um, right so that wireless was helping the ether is also clear when the analogy became de-analogized and here let me quote uh, William Brack uh, so Together with those who needed ripples in water in order to explain that wireless was a wave, there were those who saw in wireless a window open to explaining other mysteries in nature. Such was the case, for instance, of Sir William Bragg, William Henry Bragg, who explained light in terms of radio sets and not the other way around. And I quote, transmission by radio broadcasting, as we generally call it in this country, has made us familiar with the idea of a disturbance or condition which travels in waves from a central station and as is interpreted by the receiving sets near and far. The sun sends out waves just as a central station does. Our eye 
eyes receives and interpret the wave motions that strike them, just as a wireless set receives and interpret the waves from the studio. There is no difference only in their dimensions. They travel at exactly the same rate. Whatever medium carries one also carries the other. So here it's how uh, you know, the, anal uh, the analogy becomes the way to uh, explain other things. Um, so after Brad, uh, I should mention other people, and I should mention, of course, Sarah Ol Oliver Lodge, but I won't because we heard about Oliver Lodge earlier. We're going to hear about Oliver Lodge uh, before, but Oliver Lodge was the great guy of wireless, and I think, you know, this is... So, you know, he's got all these articles in the wireless world and in other wireless dominions because he is one of the big fathers of wireless technology. <laughs> Let's go and finish with what I call the public. So, Charles Gibson, which is the guy who wrote this fascinating book on the mysterious ocean of the ether, and guess what the picture is? It's a picture of Aristotle, and it's a picture of the moon somewhere. I can't find it now, but in order to show pictures of the ether, there's pictures of the moon, and I've always wondered why. Well, Charles Gibson was most prolific, one of the most prolific popularizers of science of the time. One of his many books directly addressed the issue of the ether, that is the 1925 book. But here I want to focus on another book. In 1914, he wrote a survey book, Wireless, uh, so the title is Wireless Telegraphy and Telephony Without Wires, a popular account on the past and present of wireless telegraphy and telephony, which assumes no previous knowledge of the subject on the part of the reader. I don't know whether library uh, people would be happy with titles like this anymore <laughs> in order to catalog them. Well, in it we find a most interesting emphasis on the peculiarity of wireless. The real marvel about wireless telegraphy is not the apparatus. We have many mechanical inventions more wonderful than a wireless transmitter or receiver. The marvel is that one piece of mechanism can operate another at a great distance without any apparent connection. The idea of action at a distance is dead there must be a real connecting medium, and it is the all-pervading ether of space. Professor Archibald Montgomery Lowe, another self-appointed popularizer of science, uh, well, this is uh, later, popularizer of science, defendant and prophet of science, uh, actually many of his books talk about the future, all the time it's about the future, used the ether as a way to keep wireless as a serious scientific means and not synonymous for amusement. Lowe was not happy with the fact that after the success of the BBC and radio broadcasting, and I quote, many people would undoubtedly expect the subject of wireless to be dealt with under the heading of amusement. It is therefore important to emphasize that broadcasting is perhaps the least important branch of radio. It is not true that ether used to be employed as an aesthetic and has now been put to another use, as I have heard suggested by a famous man of letters. Neither do the suspiciously high-pitched voices of male singers struggling with a Negro deity represent the ultimate value of etheric radiation. And of course, so this ether is something serious and not just about amusement. In 1937, he would make a similar point, even suggesting that the entertainment programs could be equally effectively and far more cheaply received through our electric light wires. There should be less interference and no fading, and the ether would be left free for really important work. The number of available wavelengths, so the ether begins to be limited, the number of available wavelengths is very limited, and if the use of wireless for transmitting light and power should develop, those available for entertainment will become even less. 
The controls and limitations on the ether had been an important question in the beginnings of radio broadcasting. By the mid-1920s, the ether appeared overcrowded with an excessive number of stations, national and foreign, and other needed to be <coughs> implemented. The wireless world around, uh, already warned about the dangers of foreign broadcasting in 1925. And I quote, it seems quite certain that although most of the continental countries are at present behind our own country, at least in the number of stations, that the time will soon come when the public in the other countries will demand a service equally efficient as our own, whether it will be a practical possibility for so many stations to be in operation as such a scheme would necessitate is quite another question. So the dangers of overcrowding the ether. Uh, let me just briefly give another example. The first time a uh, speech by uh, Hitler is received by a wireless in this country, that really puts the problem on the press. So how are we going to have this Hitler coming through wireless in 1933? I think it was. Can the ether be owned? Should it be policed? Should it have boundaries? These are the topics we find in the wireless world. In 1931, we learned we learn that nobody seems to care about policing the ether when we are paying for it. Postmaster General has a monopoly of the ether and the BBC is licensed to broadcast, for which there is a fee to listeners. They should be granted the right to listen without illegal interferences. And actually I also learned uh, that in 1925, in the Act of Parliament, of a telegraphy bill, it says that the it applies to the installation and working of apparatus for utilizing etheric waves for the purpose of sending or receiving energy without the aid of any wire connecting the points. Since one had to pay for the ether, the BBC was keen to ensure people were paying for it rather than letting commercial interests control it. With the headline, Keep Money Out of the Ether, the Daily Telegraph reported in 1930 on a statement by St. John White, Director General of the Corporation. The broadcasting service should be established under the auspices of the state, but certainly not conducted by the state. Declared St. John Dether should not be at the mercy of money, he said. Fortunately, with the constitution of the BBC, basically, which we have in this country, the interests of the state are safeguarded. Um, let me finish with to me is the most amusing but I must say I didn't find as many as I wanted which is advertisements of radio sets and radio related things that include the ether so the ether cell so here we have the key to the ether so to sell bulbs um, I must say this is not this app doesn't appear every month because the following month we have like a magic carpet so the ether plays the same role as a magic carpet sending you and taking you anywhere. It transforms, sorry, transport you anywhere, right? Um, so this is one company. Then we have the ether master. That is, uh, the previous one was 1922. Here we have the ether master 1928, right? And of course, my favorite one, as you can tell, is the lure of the ether, right? Uh, which I chose for the poster of this uh, workshop. And again, more lure of the ether in 1920, no, 1930, this one, right? And also, just on a comic note, uh, also in some press releases by Marconi Company in the early 1930s, they still use uh, to explain the commercial and state wireless with ether. In the peak of the Great Depression, and I'm quoting Marconi, wireless carrying its signals through the ether with the speed of light over ranges of few miles. Um, 
to the greatest distances at will is able to serve this industrial age as it could have served none previous. So the ether is permeating everything. Wireless in the age of industry, that's another thing, another memorandum from the Marconi Company in the, 19 in the early 1930s. And also an event that was much publicized in the Marconi Company when uh, the Vatican inaugurated its uh, station. Uh, Marconi paid for everything and it was highly, uh, highly publicized in this country and everywhere. And we still find, and I'm happy I got the picture in some weird website, that there's this, uh, in the inauguration display, right, which says in Latin, of course, this thing that to the ends of the earth, across the waves of ether, to the glory of God and the assistance of the souls of men. So we have some papal uh, approval to use the ether even in Latin. Um, so I think I should stop here with the lure of the ether, and if you want, we can continue later. Thank you. Okay, thank you, James.